it. Well, Proverbs chapter number 17 is where we are, and we are going to try tonight to wrap this up. As you know, we've not... Uh, We've not rushed our way through Proverbs. We've just gone as slow as we need to go. And don't worry about covering so many verses or anything. But tonight might be an exception because I'd really like to finish up uh, this chapter. But we will just see how it goes. The great thing about Proverbs is it deals with so many things that are of practical value and you know, as you know, we live in a time where common sense is not so common anymore. And you get back to the book of the Proverbs, and boy, it just breaks it down into, you know, into such simple statements, but yet, but yet very profound in a lot of ways, and deals with the issues that we face, and a lot of times the issues we face that we don't want to talk about. And uh, the Lord seems to be even more repetitious in those areas than even in the others. Well, we we pick up tonight in verse number 18, I believe it is. I hope I'm not mistaken. I think that's where I left off last time. Verse 18, a man void of understanding striketh hands. Well, today, you know, we might talk about shaking hands and entering into a deal with someone. But a person void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety in the presence of his friend. Now, he's just got through speaking about friends and about faithfulness in verse number 17. But now he's speaking about friends and finances. And this is a warning that we ought not to mix the two. And he deals with that, by the way, more extensively in Proverbs chapter number 6. But uh, I, I, I don't think I need to tell you that a lot of friendships have been ruined as a result of money matters. And that's why this warning is so very important. And the point is, the bottom line is that as a general rule, it's not wise to become surety for a friend. Uh, whenever you co-sign a note, and I learned this the hard way, over 50 years ago, trying to help out a friend. And, uh, you know, he he decided after I'd helped him that he really didn't want to uh, pay the note. And I'd co-signed on the note, so, you know, guess who that falls back on. So, and this is someone that, you know, I never dreamed would leave me high and dry. But uh, but but anyway, it's, it's just not a smart thing to do. You, when you co-sign a note, you're obligating yourself to pay what that person owes if they don't. And that leads to a lot of problems, two in particular. Number one, it uh, it puts you and your family in jeopardy. And we need to keep that in mind. Whenever Whenever you enter into any kind of a financial agreement, keep in mind that it doesn't just affect you, it affects the entire family and your ability to provide for the family. But then there's a second problem regarding this, and that is the fact that whenever you enter into an agreement like this and the friend refuses to pay, then it has created conflict between you and the friend. 
And, and, and so now, now a friendship is destroyed. Now I know somebody said, well, you know, if, if it had been a very good friendship, you know, it wouldn't have turned out that way. Well, you know, that might be true, but you can say that about any relationship that we have with one another. We do the wrong things and consequently we end up destroying what was normally a good relationship. So I think that what we ought to take away from this is, and by the way, let me let me inject this because somebody somebody might get the wrong idea. There there are verses in the Bible that permit us uh, to loan or, or or make surety for another person. There are extreme cases where people in need, and that we ought to respond to that need. But that should not be the our first thought that we'll solve the problem by loaning them the money. And, and, and the best thing to do, if at all possible, is to is to give them the money, give them what money that we can at least. Naturally, we can't provide everything everybody needs, and nobody that I know of is that rich. But the best thing to do is to just give them the money and. Uh, uh, God has a way of bringing it back to you in an abundance whenever we do that, when we reach out in love and respond to their need. Verse 19, He loveth transgression that loveth strife, and he that exalteth his gate seeketh destruction. Now here's a proverb that really gets to the heart of our social uh problems because it's dealing with sin, strife, and selfishness. And before we examine this, I, 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 I want to remind you of something, and that is that it's very important that whenever we think about studying the Bible, that a proper interpretation of the Bible demands careful examination of every word in that particular verse. And also it demands that we examine the text in the light of the context. In other words, we can't just take any one verse out of the Bible and and make a doctrine out of that. I mean, you can make the Bible teach almost anything by doing that. If you just jump here and take a verse and jump there, take a verse, you know, uh, you, you can twist it and turn it and make it say anything. So it's important that we look at each and every word. God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And I'm saying that here for a reason, because sometimes if we ignore just one word, we miss the whole meaning of the verse. For example, you've probably heard talk, people talk about uh, the money being the root of all evil. I'll bet you've heard somebody say that, and that's not true at all. The Bible doesn't say money's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And so we we need to keep the emphasis where God does. And so notice, he loveth transgression that loveth strife, and he that exalteth his his gate seeketh destruction. So this one word makes all of the difference in the world whenever he's talking about the fact that uh, the person loving transgression and and loving strife. Now, the reason I say that is because it's possible to enter into strife uh, without 
without being in love with transgression. In other words, you can do all of the right things and end up end up in a situation with where you're in strife with another person through no fault of your own. So just because somebody is involved in a in strife with someone else does not mean they love transgression. But but the person that noticed that loveth transgression loveth strife. It's talking about somebody that you say, well, who would do that? More people than you think. Whether you believe it or not, there are people that that and they, by their own testimony they love a good fight. You've heard me say about the the first year as a, as a pastor, I kind of loved a good fight. I loved to get on something. I was like a bulldog, and I wouldn't let go. And I mean, it was my way or the highway. And uh, and I, you know, I'd tell people, you know, if you don't like it, you can lump it, and you know, there's the door, you can leave. And some of them did. <laughs> and so after a while, I got to thinking, you know, uh, well, I tell you what really woke me up. And that's what Paul said about speaking the truth in love. You know, you can say the same thing and say it out of a heart of love and, and accomplish much more than just entering into a fight with someone. So notice the, the danger here. He says, he that loveth transgression loveth strife. And the person that loves sin loves strife because that's where it's going to lead to and the person that exalteth his gate seeketh destruction. Well, why would someone exalt their gate? Well, that's talking about building the gate up high and making, you know, it a, uh, something that is very elaborate and something that will draw a lot of attention and something that will make an impression. And uh, hopefully others will presume, boy, you know, they, they must ha- have a, a lot of money. And so, uh, you, you know, this this is something that a proud person might do. And so, while that's true, sometimes we err in that we we make a judgment against them that we see somebody, for example. That's uh, and by the way, whenever we talk about this, and I, I I'm re- I'm trying to hurry, and yet there's so many things here later on that I want to say that relates to this, and I I've got to try to figure out what to skip over. You know, when we talk about exalting a gate like that, that can apply to things other than gates. That can have to do with the designer clothes. It can have to do with uh, the kind of automobile we drive and all kinds of different things by way of making an impression on people. And, uh, and, you know, and to do so just for that reason is wrong. On the other hand, somebody says, well, somebody's got a big high gate or whatever, and they say, well, they're just trying to show off. Maybe not. Have you ever stop and think, that's a better source of security? Why do you think we got those gates up out there? Brother John got out there, and he put those gates up, and what have you. We keep people out. We got tired of people robbing us, you know, and so we we took measures to try to keep people out. It's a matter of security. So we're we're not trying to put on the dog, as the old saying goes, and act like we're some big fancy church or anything like that. It's just a matter of common sense and trying to protect uh, the property that God has given us. So just because you see somebody that's involved in strife with someone else, don't don't assume that they're involved in that because of some wrong they've done. 
because uh, it might be they're totally blameless. Verse 20, He that hath a froward heart findeth no good, and he that hath a perverse tongue falleth into mischief. So here he's talking about the heart, and he's talking about the tongue, and they're linked together because one affects the other. That word froward means deceitful. It means perverse or false, distorted from what is right. It's a word that we might use to describe something that that is crooked. And naturally, whenever we think about a person that is dishonest, someone that is uh, deceitful, we say, you know, do business with them. You know, they're crooked as a dog's hind leg or something like that. And so this is the idea. Somebody that's not honest, somebody that has a, a warped sense of values. And, uh, and and when a person's heart is in that condition, notice what he says, that he finds no good. So if I walk according to the inclinations of my wicked heart, then I'm going to miss the best that God has for me. I'm going to miss the blessings that God has for me. In Psalm 78, there's a perfect example of that where it says about the nation of Israel, they limited the Holy One of Israel. I have an entire series that we've taught in Sunday school, and also I've preached that series on several occasions years ago, limiting God. And you think about, you know, Almighty God, He can just speak worlds into existence. He has unlimited power. How is it that puny man can put any limitations on God? And yet we can and we do. We limit what God can do with us, through us, for us. We limit God when we refuse to cooperate with God, when we refuse to obey God. And in the case of Israel, an entire generation lost the blessings of the promised land. Think about that. Sometimes we forget about that because we jump over and look over there and finally they entered into the promised land. But we forget about all of those that died out in the wilderness, you see. All because of the fact that they refused to trust God and to obey God. Now, notice the second half of this verse because it takes it a step further. The first part says, He that has a froward heart findeth no good. In other words, you're going to miss out on something good. And he that has a perverse tongue falleth into mischief. You see, in the first half, we read about missing something that is good, but in the second half, we read about falling into mischief. And that word mischief means trouble. You know, it's one thing to miss a blessing. It's another thing to inherit trouble. You know, just to miss out on something, you know, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's bad, but it could be worse. And it gets worse when we inherit trouble. And the point is, whenever we misuse our tongue, we always end up limiting what God can do and getting ourselves in trouble. And that's why James speaks about the tongue being a destructive force. It's like a fire. It's like a poisonous uh, uh, snake or something. It, 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 it's something that that is destructive. And boy, when we think about all of the heartache and all of the all of the trouble that's been created as a result of the misuse of the tongue 
it ought, ought to be a giant warning sign to us to not go there. We need to remember what Christ said. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And those things that proceed out of our mouth, they come from the heart. So if I'm going to control my tongue, the first thing I've got to do is cleanse my heart. You probably heard somebody say of a certain person, you know, well, yeah, I know they're kind of rough and they're crude and they they say things they shouldn't and do things they shouldn't, but... But really, they've really got a good heart. No, they don't. they got a rotten heart. And that's what the problem is. It's the problem of the heart. And and some people say, well, you know, I I know I say those things, but I really don't mean them. (laughs) Listen, there's married couples that pull that kind of stuff. Well, that's just the way we talk to each other. Well, you ought to change your vocabulary. You know, you ought, you ought to make some corrections. It's not right to speak disrespectfully of people and especially uh, your own spouse. And it would certainly uh, avoid a lot of problems. Verse 21, He that begetteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow, and the father of a fool hath no joy. Now, here we see how the character of a child affects the joy of a parent. And and, and I don't think anybody but a parent can really fully understand uh, what's being said here because good parents want what is right. They want what is best for their children. And whenever your child ignores wise counsel, when they rebel, whenever they pursue a foolish course, They hurt themselves and they hurt other people and it absolutely tears your heart out. If you've ever gone through that, uh, and by the way, if you're a parent, sooner or later you will go through it. And it'll be one of the great difficulties of your life trying to deal with that. And so let me say to you young people, you need to learn to be patient with your parents because someday you're going to understand what it's like and until that day comes, you'll do yourself and your parents a big favor if you accept what they say is the truth and follow their advice. You know, I think if any of us, if we had a million dollars, we'd do whatever we need to do to protect it. Uh, you know, I keep my doors locked for a reason. Uh, I've, I've got a uh, security system at the house for a reason. I've got a pistol for a reason. All of those things there is to protect life and protect property. Now, you just picture the fact if you had a million dollars worth of gold bullion there in the closet. And I don't think anybody would just go off and leave the doors open, you know, make it available to anyone by the way, that's the way we lived whenever I was a kid. We didn't lock up anything. The doors unlocked, the windows open and things, and we didn't have to worry about it. But nowadays, I'll guarantee you that that wouldn't be there very long. So you have to take measures to protect that, right? Now, I've not lost track of where I'm at. I know exactly where I'm going, even though you're confused about it. What I'm saying is, listen to me, young people. You are of more value to your parents than a million dollars. 
There's no amount of money that equals your value in their sight. That's why they take every measure to protect you. There is a curfew. There's laws to go by, rules to follow. And they're doing it because they care about you. They're not doing it just because they want to try to make life difficult for you. And uh, and you need to respect that. Verse 22, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. You know, uh, the importance of this proverb is seen in the fact that it deals with our emotional and our physical well-being. And, and by the way, that can affect us spiritually. And, and anything that affects us in all of these different ways ought, ought, to, ought to be given a lot of attention. Uh, you, you ever heard of EII? That's emotionally induced illness. Emotionally induced illness. And I could spend uh, the next 30 minutes just reading statistics and what have you and commenting on studies that have been done in this regard. Dr. John Schindler said that 50% of the people treated by physicians are there because of EII. To prove that assertion, he appealed to a study that was done by the Ostner Clinic in New Orleans where 500 consecutive patients that were admitted with gastrointestinal problems, and they studied all of them, 74%. It was determined that the problem was emotionally induced illness. Other studies at Yale, for example, have proven everything from high blood pressure to stomach pain to back pain to neck pain to tiredness to everything you can imagine. Now, now listen, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you have any of those symptoms, it's because you have an emotionally induced illness. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying emotionally induced illness is caused by or causes these, these things I'm talking about. And, and, and many doctors believe, as Dr. Schindler did, that that at least 50% of all visits to doctors is the result of emotionally induced illness. So our emotional well-being is extremely important to our physical health, and that affects us in a spiritual way. Because like I said, it's hard to be spiritual when you've got a migraine headache, you know. Uh, when, when you've got a splitting headache, it's really hard, to, uh, you know, to think along spiritual lines. Somebody has called anxiety America's number one health problem. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know anxiety is a uh, is a, a, a great problem in America today. And when you stop and think about it, I want to emphasize in America today, because when you stop and think about it, we have more than anybody else on the face of the earth, don't we? I mean, we're living in the lap of luxury. I mean, you would think if anybody was going to be uh, happy and healthy and everything, it would surely be us. And yet, and yet, right here in America, uh, people are so unhappy, complaining about everything under the sun. And the remedy for that, according to what he tells us here, is that a merry heart 
doeth good like a medicine. By the way, it's a whole lot cheaper. Some medicines can get high real quick. I went down and had one filled the other day, and uh, somewhere or another it's not, it's not on the formulary for my insurance. And so at first they said, well, we can't fill this. The insurance company won't pay for it. And I said, well, I don't care. And they said, well, we, we won't fill it anyway. And I said, well, I'll go somewhere else and get it filled. And they wanted to argue about it. And finally I said, look, we've been doing business with you probably 20 years we probably fill over 20 different prescriptions every month. And if you don't want to accommodate on us, we'll go somewhere else. And I walked out. And I headed for Walmart. And I got pulled in the parking lot at Walmart and my cell phone rang. And it was the pharmacist at this place. And uh, said, Mr. Stone, would you come back? Said, we, uh, we'll be able to take care of that. But anyway, this one particular medicine's not on there, so you 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 know you've got to pay more for it. But whenever you think about a merry heart, that doesn't cost anything. I mean, it doesn't have to cost anything. You know, some people they they're so mixed up they think the only way they can be happy is if they're going and doing and spending and things like that. But my land, we ought to be we ought to be able to enjoy life just. Like we did when I was a kid, sit out on the porch swing. What's wrong with that? Watch the sun go down. Get up early enough to watch the sun come up. You know, there's a lot of things where we can find enjoyment in life. I was trying to think of who it was, one of the famous businessmen, Rockefeller or someone. I, I, I don't know. I shouldn't get started with the story, but had severe, severe problems and was taking a lot of pain medication. And, and he discovered that whenever he would watch something, uh, uh, something that was funny, that it was like pain relief for a couple of hours afterwards. And, and so this person rented all, and this was back years and years ago, but rented all of the movies of, I don't know, the Marx Brothers, the Three Stooges, and a bunch of those people, and was sick, couldn't do anything anyway. I mean, this person was really sick and they thought was dying. And, and and just I mean every day was a regular dose of of of, of humor, and all of a sudden the health began to the pain to begin to diminish and the health began to come back and finally he's able to get up and go to work again and resume his life. And I'll tell you, there's a lot to be said for that. And boy, whenever you put that in conjunction with the fact the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love and what? Joy. And whenever we have joy, it's going to affect us every way in our life. We're going to be healthier if we have joy. We'll deal with everything better. I've got to hurry. Verse 23, a wicked man taketh the gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. Well, that speaks about bribery quite obviously. It's paying somebody to render a favorable decision. And by the way, that was common in those days. And he speaks about the bosom. And of course, uh, that had to do with that area of the garment, the way they dressed, had a robe on, and the, it was wrapped around, and there was folds in the garment, and then the belt was pulled up tight. And so the folds there in the garment in the bosom area 
is where they where they kept their money and what have you. So it's talking about a wicked man taking the gift out of his bosom, reaches in. We'd say today, you know, he pulls out his wallet uh, in order to pervert the way of judgment. You know, in some parts of the world, bribery is considered a, a way of life with the border crossings and things of that nature. Uh, I, I'm told by those who travel a lot to other countries that it's just a way of life. Whenever you cross the border, it's just going to be expected, you know, going to be some under-the-table money that's going to exchange hands or or, or they're going to find some reason to uh, to keep you out or to make life difficult for you. The, the problem is that's not the only area where we run into that problem. It happens in courtrooms. We can all think of situations, you know, where for some reason or another, someone who is obviously guilty gets off scot-free and uh, just doesn't seem to be any justice sometimes. But it happens also in the corporate world and not just the courtroom. And these these guys here that are involved in in the business world, they can tell you that a lot of people consider that to be just a part of doing business. It's not being dishonest. You just got to get the advantage of the other person. It's kind of like the philosophy of the Muslims. They say, well, lying is wrong unless it gives you an advantage over your enemies. If it gives you an advantage over your enemies, lie all you want to. And that's exactly what they do. They come into a country, you know, they lie. All we want to do is peacefully coexist. We want to be a part of your wonderful society. We want to be, you know, uh, 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 contributing members and make the community better, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and then they get firmly rooted until finally, you know, they've, they've got a big enough population that they can take over and, by the way, if you if you read their writings, they tell you what they're trying to do. That's a, you know that's the crazy thing about it. It's all laid out there where you can read what they have said, what Muhammad himself, and what you know the statements that he made, and uh, so you can see what they're trying to do. And we turn right around and play right into their hand. Verse twenty four: Wisdom is before him that have understanding, but the eyes of the fool are in the ends of the earth. In other words, a person of understanding directs his attention toward wisdom. And he does that because he understands the importance of wisdom. That's why he gives himself to the pursuit of wisdom. I think it does all good to ask ourselves and to be honest about it. Am I really making an effort? Am I really pursuing wisdom? wisdom in my life. The Bible says we're to seek after wisdom like a person seeks after silver and gold and precious stone. But I've got to tell you, I think if we're honest, we'd have to admit we don't do that nearly enough. And the reason we don't is because we're pursuing other things instead of trying to increase our wisdom. But notice the flip side of the coin the fool has no definite object in view whatsoever. Notice the, the eyes of the fool are in the ends of the earth. In other words, he doesn't have any sense of purpose. He doesn't have any worthy goals. No object in view. He's just looking out yonder somewhere. I was reading this this afternoon, thinking about tonight, and the first thing that came to my mind was whenever I was a boy in grade school, and I can still see myself sitting there in York School, 
and looking out the window at those great big tall windows in, in, on the first floor and the second floor and uh, sitting there and looking out the window and thinking, and I, I mean, I, it, it was just like I was there. I was fishing or hunting or playing ball, something besides doing my, my work. We call that daydreaming, of course. And, you know, we, we, we think about that being a childish problem, but it's more than that because it becomes habitual with a lot of people to where they, they're like a butterfly, a butterfly that's just flittering from one flyer to another, and that's the way their, their mind is. They're not focused on anything, and, uh, I, I, I don't even want to go there because, let me, let me tell you, we don't solve all of the problems with giving a kid a pill and putting a label on that kid and giving them a pill and making them a zombie of some kind. Those problems with those labels that we've come to know and love so well. Let me tell you, those problems always existed, and most of them could be solved with a good spanking. Anyway, that's my two cents. I'll, I'll get off of that. The eyes of fool are in the ends of the earth. How sad to think about somebody living without any sense of purpose or worthy goals. The people God used know why they're here, and they know what God wants them to do, and they're, they're focused on that. Verse 25, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. Now, n- notice he, back in verse number 21, he just spoke about this subject, and, and now... Here we go again, basically speaking about the same thing. And somebody might think, well, you know, why it's not necessary to bring it up again. We just, we just talked about that. But God thinks otherwise. God knows this is a common problem. It's a serious problem. And it's one that we need, uh, that we need to look at again and again. And, and by the way, we don't solve the problem with the children by, you know, just Telling the children, look, you need to, you need to make sure that you don't grieve the heart of your, your dad and your mom and you want to, you know, do the things that please them. That, that doesn't solve the problem because the problem's not between the child and the parent. The problem is between the child and God. And whenever that child comes to fear God, to have a healthy respect for God and to love God, when they get to that point, naturally, naturally, they're going to have respect for their parents. And so, you know, a lot of times uh, we, we say to a kid, you know, someday you'll know what your parents feel like. Well, that that's true, but right now that doesn't really impress them because if it did, they'd be breaking a leg, rushing to their parents, you know, trying to make things right. And I haven't seen any signs of that lately of you. I, you know, I, no, and, and we never will till they get right with God. Verse 26, also, to punish the just is not good, nor to strike princes for equity. Uh, notice the word also. This is connecting, this is connecting this verse with the previous verse. And the point is, just as it's unfair for a child to grieve his parents, it's wrong to punish those that are just or to strike those that are in authority. 
And, and, and by the way, don't underestimate the seriousness of these words where it says not good. In verse number 15, we're told that it's an abomination to condemn those that are just. And now it's an abomination. If it's an abomination to condemn those that are just, think about how bad it must be to strike them, to literally hit them. You know, a lot of times we'll use that phrase, something is not good. We use it in the sense to mean, well, it's not good, but it's not terribly bad. It's just, you know, not not good. And it's not good that you do that. But please understand, whenever God says something's not good, it means it's very bad. It's serious. It's awful. It's terrible. It's horrible. And so to punish the just is horrible, terrible in the sight of God. And to strike those that are in positions of authority also is an abomination to God. Verse 27, He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. I am so tempted to stop here and say, well, we're going to finish out next week, but I'm going to wrap all of this up tonight if it kills me. But, uh, you know, it's a common thing, you know, for those that know the least to talk the most. Solomon said there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak, and some people don't know what time it is. They don't know when they ought to say something and when not. You know, sometimes the best proof of wisdom is silence. I'll never forget going to work for the Missouri State Highway Department the first day on the job. The the engineer took me out there and, and, and was going to introduce me to the crew and what have you. Before we got there, he stopped up on the grade just, and I thought, what is he stopping here for instead of going up to the shack or the little office that we had there? He said, I want to tell you something before we get there, and it will help you a lot. And he said, you're going to run into a lot of difficult situations, and the contractor's going to be asking you questions and what have you about this and that, and you're new to the job and so forth. He said, if you don't know something, just tell them I don't know. Don't ever, you know, fake it. Don't ever try to act like you know something you don't know. That's some of the best advice that I've ever received. Because even as a pastor, there have been times I've had to tell people, I don't know. I don't, oh, you know, I could just blabber on and, you know, and uh, pull some verses out of context and act like I don't know. But it's a whole lot better that when we don't know that we don't pretend that we do. Uh, Like somebody said, and I copied it down years ago, it's better to keep quiet and let others think you're stupid than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. That's true. And notice, a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. An excellent spirit. By the way, that word excellent means cool or chill. Well, I, I, as I thought about that, it took me back to the, you know, the 50s when I was growing up. And, you know, our favorite phrase was, you know, hey, man, that's cool, cat. You know, that was that kind of the way we talk. That's that's cool. Or, and today we use the word chill. Let's just chill out, you know. Well, listen, th- that's what this means, excellent. And... Uh, and so he's saying a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. I, he, he's calm. He's composed. 
And and you you see so many people today, they, they don't even know how to deal with differences with other people. They can't have an intelligent conversation about something that they disagree with because it breaks out into a big argument of some kind. It usually starts with us raising our voice, doesn't it? Oh, we get louder and we get louder and we get louder, and if that doesn't work, we bring the mother-in-law into it. You know, you're just like your mother, and boy, boy, you know, then it all breaks loose. Well, of course, I'm not saying that from experience. Others have told me that. Yeah, I heard about it. A man of understanding... He's cool, man, cool. He's an excellent spirit. One more verse. Even a fool, I love this, even a fool when he holdeth his peace is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. That tells us that, that a fool, think about this, a fool gains the reputation of being wise if he simply keeps quiet. He, he gains a reputation of being a wise person by just keeping quiet. And that goes right back to that quote I read a minute ago. Because a lot of times, you know, we open our mouth and we prove that we're not as smart as we want people to think we are. And, 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 and it's just sad that a lot of times we don't have enough sense to shut up and, and, and we, we just keep talking and finally we hang ourselves. And, um, you know, we don't have to prove every point. As a young preacher, I, I, I thought I had to prove everything. Somebody didn't agree uh, with something. I thought, you know, I, I've got to prove that they're wrong. No, I don't. All I've got to do is tell them the best I can what the Bible says about it. And I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not going to argue with them about it. And people go talking about the Big Bang Theory, and you know, and the world coming into existence like that and someone posted the other day on Facebook you know had a had a monkey over here and a man over here and all of the progression supposedly of evolution and it says we still have these and we still have these you know where are where are all of those missing links how how you know if we still got the monkeys around why is it that there's None of these other creatures that are in between the two. Well, it's because they never existed, you see. And, 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 and you don't have to try to win every argument. Just give them the truth and let the Holy Spirit work on their heart because He's the only one that'll change them in the long run. Thank you so much for being here tonight and Lord willing, I think next week we'll start in chapter 18. I'm saying that because I'm going to take about five weeks in teaching on the Lord's Supper, either on Wednesday night or or Sunday night. I haven't made up my mind. But if I do it on Sunday night, then we'll keep going in Proverbs on Wednesday night. So uh, you, you pray that I'll have enough sense to do what God wants me to do. Any last word? Let's all stand together. I love Him. I love Him. Because He first loved me. And purchased my salvation on Calvary.
about that is that we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Thank God for that. Well, wow. Then. Well, let's bow our heads in prayer. Brother Weisenbaker, would you lead us in prayer tonight, please? Thank you for the joy and privilege it is to gather in your house and feast upon your word. Yes. Father, help us to always keep in mind the treasure that your word is. Yes. The practicality that you give it in your word. How wonderful it is to open your words and to have these very practical, wonderful verses taught to us, Father, to teach us how to conduct ourselves in a Christian, decent, upright manner. Thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name, amen.